Hello everyone, welcome back to It's a Wonderful Podcast and November, of course, Janine, as we ramp up November to not just one movie, an episode, but a couple of movies, an episode, Ooh. because we have a nice special treat today on episode 288 oh. of It's a Wonderful Podcast, as we talk The Postman always rings twice the 1946 film noir heavy version with john garfield and lana turner and its 1981 remake with jack nicholson and jessica lang a very different adaptation of the postman always rings twice than its earlier counterpart it's also an unusual situation for me janine a very unusual situation where I'm actually firstly familiar with the book oh, rather than the movie, okay. which never, ever, ever, yeah. ever happens. <laughs> well, so you'll be able myself... to speak to what is more accurate to the source material. Yeah, I find myself in a an old position yeah. <laughs> with the postman always rings twice. Um having known the story before watching either of these movies for the first time, Same. I must admit, um, for this this episode. Bold statement number one, neither movie grasps the book entirely. Okay. Now, whether either movie is a more enjoyable experience to sit through as a story than the book, that can be a fair argument. You know, I'm not here to say the book is always better. These arguments can rarely have any sort of winner. Um, all you can usually say in these situations is the book often has more in-depth detail because yeah. it is allowed that being in that particular form. But comparing books and movies are very, very is very, very tough to do. But when you're comparing a book to an adaptation, I think is a, a more interesting way of actually talking about it because there's plenty of great adaptations that aren't necessarily faithful. They're just great adaptations. And that's where I think we sit, particularly with one of these movies. Um, and then the other movie, I think, takes a a more, perhaps a more accurate, tone to the book but maybe isn't quite as strong of a movie in itself and i think that's where ultimately i lie with these two here because i do think the 46 version directed by tay garnett and lana turner john garfield in that is a wonderful movie to look at it's it's yeah. visually just really downbeat and kind of miserable as it should be because this whole story is just kind of nasty and miserable a lot yeah. of the time you're dealing with two characters who do not think about the consequences of their actions not at, at all, all. <laughs> yeah um and are two kind of really bad people uh, at the end of the day who end up getting kind of what they deserve yeah. in the end or as storytelling would have you uh, 
would have you know it believed so i think the the noir style of that 46 version is a really great way of changing the or also i suppose censoring the story from the book because it is a very graphic book in, yeah. in, in kind of violence in sex in real twisted mentalities um you can see why it took i, I think when was the book like late 29 or something like that i think the book was written 1929 um so it took a while and it's a successful book so it took a while to actually properly adapt to hollywood yeah. because i'm sure they wondered how on earth they were they going were to pick some of these scenes yeah in you know in full production code times yeah um and the fact they were able to in such a great way that that 1946 movie does still with little allusions to certain um overt elements that the the book certainly does have and the 1981 remake certainly does have as well yeah um i think they were quite bold really with just how far they pushed that boundary i think it, it's it would be understandable to know that the 1946 Postman Always Rings Twice was a pretty controversial movie because it was a controversial story to begin with. Yeah. So why would it not want to push those boundaries as far as it could? And I think it probably did do that, to be honest with you. But where do you stand with these two movies, having not having no knowledge of the book? Um, I... Yeah, I really didn't know even what the plot points were in these films, what it was even about. Um, in going to the original 1946 film, I was taken on a real emotional roller coaster. It took twists and turns that I did not expect it to go in. Plot points came in that I was not expecting to to really play into the story. Um, these characters, I think, go on an insane journey as well in terms of this falling in love and then this uh, plot to be together, you know, firstly a plot to run away, then to, you know, be together and get rid of the husband, then this whole kind of them coming apart because they kind of betray each other because of their fear and, and guilt over what happens. Um, ultimately, this kind of coming together. And I will say I preferred the 46 version just because i think I, I i preferred the depiction of that relationship coming from a pure place of love and that is what was driving and motivating their actions whereas yeah. in the <laughs> in the 81 version it was far too tumultuous to even believe that they would do what they do for each other because of how they treat each other and how antagonistic they are to each other from the start. Um, I understand I understand why you would think that absolutely, which is probably what my next point is going to be will probably come as uh, maybe a little bit strange to you yeah. because I actually think certainly um Jack Nicholson is far more faithful to the book's version of Frank Chambers than John Garfield is. Yeah. In 
in that 46 version. I can, I can because imagine, he is yeah. sleazy. He's a con artist. He's nasty. Um, he is just a dirty, grimy, kind of unlikable protagonist. Yeah. And Nicholson is all has always been able to present that yes. across so, so well. And he does it really well, I think, in that. But I completely understand what you mean. Um, the emotional impact, I think, is felt more in the earlier movie. Yeah. Um, between, you know, the, the two in that central relationship. Um, but that's because I think the movie wants you to... It wants you to kind of understand that they might, at the back of their minds, have a certain good morality despite all the bad things they're doing. And the 81 version actually just stays a bit truer to what the book is doing and just depicting two people who are ultimately totally are not up. good. Yeah. They're not good people. Yeah. Um, there doesn't need to be that undercurrent of perhaps they're good in the back of their minds because we even get it at the very, very end of but the 1946 movie. But, but for me, even in the end of the 46 movie, I was still questioning motivations and still questioning, um, you know, where um, allyship lied with these characters um, because so much has happened between the two of them. Um at the end, they're very much watching each other and suspicious of each other, you know, that one is going to call the cops on the other and one is going to implicate the other after what they've been through. So even though it, I think it does give us more of this moral sense with these characters than in the uh, later version, I, the movie does enough to still have us as an audience question them as people in terms of, you know, how they view each other and who can we trust there's a whole scene where i thought one of the characters was very much plotting this big kind of death against the other and then yeah. it, it ended up being a whole different thing so you know i get what you're saying where these characters feel much more um like they wanted to give them this type of uh moral thing in the back of 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 our minds but i still felt you know that these people still had a lot of issues and and weren't incredibly good people by the end because they did enough to really have us still question their motivations yeah i mean i don't i don't disagree with that either i think it does definitely you know portray them both as still pretty bad people but i think i'm more overcome with the nature of the very end of the 46 movie where you have Frank John Garfield on, on death row um, at that point, almost understanding that that's where he deserves to be. And I know I've done wrong, Father. He's talking to a priest. Yeah. I know I've done wrong, Father. Um, you know, I, I understand my fate and accept it. Just as the postman always rings twice. Yeah, he has to Which throw is what them. he says. Yeah. Um, fate has come back for me and made sure, I guess, I've got my letter. I guess this is what the idea of the title is. Yeah. You always have to get your letter, um, which is a very, very uh, motion picture production code ending. 
yes i definitely get where and i don't love it (laughs) yes the the moral center of this ending is a little too celluloid a little too much um in terms of what we've been given beforehand and what you're saying is in the uh the novel itself so uh yes i get you really feeling that with the ending indeed because they really push this oh you know he's a good man victim of circumstance kind of vibe that they're trying to portray this whole thing yes and and, you know the whole thing with that ending as well is that he feels this immense guilt um because he feels responsible for Cora's death um but ultimately he learns that he was not responsible for her death he was he's in he he could get out and get redeemed for what happened to Cora, but he'd still go back in for a different crime. And he'd prefer to do that because he doesn't want it on his conscience that it's because of Cora that he's there, but it's because of something else. And so it's very yeah. much this this very push of uh, kind of cheesy, like, you know, I'm a good man underneath it all. So I totally get why this ending is, is really what is driving that point for you. Um, yeah. But I mean, I think had it ended with the car accident that, you know, causes Cora's death, I think that would have just been a better place to kind of close it out than this tack. It felt tacked on for sure. Yeah. An exposition, no, which, an expositional. It, it definitely, but it's actually where the book ends. Oh, the book ends okay. with him on death row, okay. but he's blase about the affair. Okay. He's, he's not, not you know, looking in, for in this, this redemption for Cora's sake. no, no, which is almost, I almost prefer the ending of the, the 81 version where yeah. it just ends with her death, him yeah. having caused it, and yes, they deserve the, you know, he, he deserves the misery that he is going to now suffer. We don't have to see anything else because that's ultimately what the end of the book was for me. And and I'm not saying that the book is you know, gospel and, and that's has to, you know, you don't always yeah. have to go with that. You don't, of course you don't. Um, I just prefer a downbeat ending to this story. And I know we're talking about the ending before anything else <laughs> within this episode, within the movie, ultimately because the plot takes so many just bizarre turns that you really can't plan uh, in your own mind, yeah, where it may where go. We're end up. Yeah. The character decisions that are made are perfectly, ac- again, perfectly accurate to what's going on in the book, yeah. but are absolutely odd. They come out of just nowhere. You wonder what on earth some of the character choices are, are, are doing. Also, you know, you wonder what on earth the characters are doing making those choices. Yeah. You think it's just strange writing it's not it's just exactly what happens um ultimately basically all you need to know is frank is a drifter he comes into this off the road off the highway kind of lunch diner place gas station place gas station place gets a job there working for nick played in the 46 version by uh, Cecil Kellaway, and his wife, played by Lana Turner, his much, much younger wife, who you immediately wonder, what's really gone on there? Yeah, what is she doing with this guy, you know? And 
basically, pretty suddenly, there is a very primal, tumultuous romance that, uh, I'll say blossoms, that's a far nicer word that it deserves, between Frank and Cora, um, that results in them planning to be with each other no matter what. Um, And this is the kind of first half of the story. Rather unusually, it's quite similar to... James M. Cain wrote the novel. Um, It's pretty similar to, you know, one of his other biggest novels, probably his other biggest novel, which is Double Indemnity. Okay. He wrote Double Indemnity as well, which is, I think... A a story that is, yes, okay, you know, Walter in Double Indemnity is a bad person, but he's far more susceptible, I think, to Phyllis Dietrichson's uh, wily ways in that movie. Whereas I think these two are kind of on equal equal par. Yes, yes. It's bad. Yes. Um. That's not the point I'm trying to make anyway. The point I'm trying to make is that ultimately the first half of both those stories result in the murder of a husband. Yeah. Which is what they do. And then the rest of the movie is the fallout from that, perhaps a bit of guilt falling out from that in different ways. Um, We're not here to compare The Postman Always Rings Twice to Double Indemnity. That's a much deeper episode (laughs) i think but one that might be might be worth looking into yeah definitely i think it would uh it would be interesting to look at that as a bit of the mind of the same person yeah yeah um but that's ultimately kind of what happens and i mean i think lana turner's so good as cora in the 46 version jessica lang is cora in the in the remake who is doing a a perfectly fine job and it's a strange situation really because i find that lana turner was able to just play the switching from really quite almost proud and sometimes even sweet and just kind of, I don't know, happy's the wrong word, but like she she doesn't mind being in the position she's in. Content. She just doesn't really. Yet content, I suppose, is a, is a good word for it. Um, she doesn't mind being in the position she's in with Nick, even though, you know, Nick's not the perfect husband. He is much older than her. There's a certain um, definitely racist element that is in the book that isn't in really either of these movies. It's more in the 81 version, because at least in the 81 version, Nick is a Greek man. Um, So that's a a bit more accurate there. But in, in the 46 version, there is absolutely none of that whatsoever. Um, which, you know, might be a bit strange, but then I suppose it, it it adds to that movie's idea 
that there might be a bit of goodness somewhere in Frank and Cora. Because really, when you read about the two of them, they really resent Nick just for being Greek a lot of the time, which is just, you know, naturally a bad thing. Mm -hmm. So that's just another element of of real unlikability. Yes, to add to them being just terrible people generally. It's... It's just a it's, a, it's one of probably the most dangerous relationship, I think, in noir between these two. Because if you look at other dangerous noir relationships, usually, as tends to be the case with a lot of noir, it's powerful women preying on weak men. Yeah. This isn't even that. It, it's it's a bit of both, which I yeah. think what's, what makes Postmanorius of Rings twice perhaps a little bit tough to speak about in context of noir because it it is a bit different to a lot of the, a lot of uh, its you know similar similar noirs of its kind. It's it's murder plotting noirs. It's bad protagonist situations. Yeah, because it's both of them. It is usually one of them influencing the other, where and this is one of them influencing the other, but then this one also influencing the other person, and it going back and forth in that to the point where they both just end up really kind of hating each other, resenting each other, and turning on each other, coming back together. It's bizarre. Yeah, it's and that's mad. what I'm talking about. This emotional roller coaster that happens. Um, you know, you talk about Cora being contented in the life she's in, but Frank does bring this kind of interest to her in terms of how he approaches her, and that's what I think I prefer about Lana Turner's Cora and the fact that she very much feels like she is on the same level as Frank the whole time. She is very uh, self-assured. She knows what she wants. You know, even if she's stuck with this husband that she doesn't wholly care for, you know, she still has dreams for this place that they've built together. She still has ideas and wants to, you know, see that through. Um, Even to their introduction to each other, I really loved this kind of uh, game that they were playing right from the start she drops her lipstick and you know it rolls towards him and then we just get the view of these legs and we're seeing what frank is seeing i mean what an entrance it is right into a movie we had a great entrance with edward g robinson in the bath last week Lago. this is this is a much more pleasant to to look at yes and it already sets up this game that these two are going to be playing throughout this film with each other she stays in that doorway that she's standing in and holds her hand out for him to bring the lipstick to her he holds the lipstick out to her and does not approach her so it's this standoff immediately between the two of them and so then she ultimately makes the first move gets the lipstick from him he's trying to talk to her and so she kind of takes that power you know she gave up a bit of power to walk towards him to get the lipstick she gets a little bit of that power back by him trying to talk to her and her just kind of ignoring him and proceeds to just put on her lipstick right in front of him and then just leave the scene without even acknowledging a conversation with him. 
you know, to yeah. any real, to, to any significant degree. So I love this setup of this power play between the two of them immediately. So we already know how this relationship is going to go, that it's going to be this uh, kind of butting of heads, the struggle for power, but this intense chemistry because they both think alike. Um, I mean, and you, f- you do feel that as well. I think yeah. there is a real intense chemistry between Garfield and Turner in that movie. I think better than Nicholson and Lang's chemistry, even though Nicholson and Lang are doing far more intense things on screen. Yes, they're far more intense, but the... There for for a lot uh, for um, Jessica Lang's Cora, she's not uh, as consistent. You know, in one minute she's kind of headstrong and trying to be dominant, and then the next minute she's needy and uh, insecure uh, and unsure. Um, and so I like the consistent confidence that Lana Turner gives that character where Jessica Lang is kind of all over the place emotionally. Um, I think you always you always realize that Lana Turner is fully aware of what game she's trying to play, what emotion she's trying to portray. It is all a little bit of an act yes. for Lana Turner's Cora. And I do agree with you, Jessica Lang's perhaps being, perhaps just performing it a little bit more naturalistically yeah. than it perhaps should be. It should feel a bit like a, somebody pretending to be a certain emotion rather than what Jessica Lang does and has done really well for her entire career is bring pretty heavy realism to the matter. Yeah. And it's something the 81 movie does do. It's a, it's a far dirtier movie, a far grimier movie. Nicholson is wonderfully sleazy. He is a far more accurate Frank Chambers. Yeah. But it's whether you prefer the relationship dynamic in, in the older movie or in that remake. And it, it is just... It is just better from Garfield and Turner. Yes, I feel like that relationship starts at least in a, a genuine loving place. Like they are motivated by their love. They are motivated by this need to be together, to start a life, to have all the things that she wants that she's not getting in her current life. Um, because, you know, they do make this plan before there's even a plan to kill Nick there is this plan to just leave together. You know, she leaves this note in the register saying she loves Frank and they're going to leave together. But when that gets to a rocky start, she kind of just gives up and goes for what's easy going back to the life that she's had. Um, Ultimately her frustration kind of kicks in and that's when this whole formulation of this plot comes in. Um, And when things don't go well with this plot, then that's when the resentment comes in and the betrayal between the two of them. But I think when you genuinely feel like this whole motivation and plot, it's not driven by money. It's not driven about, you know, trickery or one side trying to win over the other it feels like a genuine mutual love for each other that's driving them uh and then once they end up betraying each other it puts them on shaky ground and the motivations change and the resentment and guilt comes in um and then we get more of kind of the manipulation of each other but i think feeling like it starts from a pure place 
is a really interesting way to go about it. And then seeing that whole relationship dissolve into what it does, um, this this really untrustworthiness between the two of them, and then them really playing into these games and manipulation that you would see in a noir film, uh, is where kind of the roller coaster starts happening for me with these characters. Yeah, Whereas they're all they're in in the eighty one version, they're very much consistently just terrible at every turn even the start of their relationship is very just gritty and grimy and carnal and I never feel a sense of true loving feelings or romantic feelings it's very much just kind of just gritty and nasty (laughs) from the start so you know I, I don't feel an evolution between the two of them then even when they do kind of get to this loving place at the end it doesn't feel wholly believable a hundred percent it is it is a a difference between love and lust throughout yeah. you know if you compare in both movies <laughs> however my mind just com- continues to go back to the fact that actually the book is just lustful there's no yeah. love it is yeah. just lustful so i i'm I'm constantly being like beaten over the head. Yes, you're, I should like I should saying, prefer 81 because that is what we we were supposed to be given. But 46 brings well, in this oh, interesting dynamic that it's hard to kind of it, it does give this give you I'm sure this tug of war of feelings. It is doing because I I am I'm constantly kind of being reminded and just saying the book's nasty. You should like you know, like Nicholson, like Nicholson, like Nicholson. It's like, yes, I do like Nicholson, but I, the movie's better in 1946. I can't yeah. help thinking the movie's actually better. And that is a wonderful reason, I think, as to why it actually feels more almost captivating to watch because you do feel strong, a stronger emotional bond between the two of them in 1946. And I think that is important for that kind of movie. It does feel like... <laughs> it almost feels a little more gradual in 1946 as well, the, 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 the bond between the two of them. Um, which is unusual because I think he, you know, John Garfield goes in for a pretty aggressive kiss earlier than Nicholson does in yeah. in that movie. But when Nicholson goes in for a pretty aggressive kiss, it, it turns into far more and ends up in some situations happening on top of a table. Yes, um, that we that we don't need to talk go into and talk <laughs> about in great detail. You know exactly what's going yeah. on there. It's all very instinctive it's all very we're not thinking about anybody else in this particular moment let's fondle each other with knives around which is pretty much what they're doing there is a certain almost i don't know if 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 this is a bit of a strong word to be using but sadomasochism, I think, about the post yes. rings twice. Yes. There is that, and it's certainly present in the 81 version. It's obviously not present in the 46 <laughs> version, as, we, as we've talked about why. But one scene in particular that really, when I was reading the book, made me kind of wince and just realise how messed up mentally these two characters are 
yeah. is right after their plan to dispose of Nick has ultimately come off because how they do this, you know, Frank's been living at this um, roadside cafe slash gas station for a while now. And, you know, the, the relationship has gone on between him and Cora behind Nick's back. Yeah. Um, and they try, they do try running off once, but Cora's kind of brought back because she doesn't really want to leave that place. She is ultimately quite proud of and wants to make yeah. into something better, yeah. which is also a really interesting aspect to her character. Um, so they end up, well, at first like, they end up trying to beat him over the head um, at, at night, but this persistent police officer who comes into the movie at the most oh, inopportune the, in, time yeah, the most for Frank and Cora. He is a phenomenally inconvenient presence yeah. to the two of them. Um, and he comes in right when Frank's about to kind of walk up these ladders outside to um, plan to yeah, beat him over the head while he's in the shower, basically. Um, the, the cat walks onto the, the fuse box outside, all the lights go out, and it's a bit of a botch job yeah. in the end. Nick ends up in hospital. Um, the two of them are panicking because they think, oh my God, if he dies, there's a policeman that saw the ladder and or you know. do something, would, you know, were perhaps doing yeah. something a little bit strange. So they already try it once, but the second time they plan, and uh, it, it ultimately ends up coming off because they have all this act about being drunk and they get Nick drunk and Frank's supposed to be drunk as well. And, and they, they try and plan all their little stages of witnesses and all this kind of thing. Um, drive up to this very dangerous uh, road. In, side, in, yeah. in, I think it's near Santa Barbara. We should also mention, by the way, this is very california noir full of false persona yeah. and full yeah. of fakeness and, and oh, yes. horrible facades that uh cal <laughs> the great california noirs are all are known for it now seedy relationships and you know not thinking about consequences yeah. it's very california noir yes. um so they drive up into the hills near, or near Santa Barbara and ultimately push the car off a cliff with uh, a, a drunk and also again beaten over the head Nick in it. Um, yeah. Now, in the book, right after they've done this, they think to themselves, and I suppose they do it in both versions of the movie as well, they think to themselves, we don't look like we've been in a car crash here. Yes. Um, this 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 is going to look very suspicious. We need to look like we've been in a car crash. We've been crash. rolled down this hill as well. Yeah. Now, in, in the 1946 movie, ultimately, Frank ends up falling off a cliff as well and he, uh, very badly injuring himself. And this yes, happens in, in all versions. Yeah. Um, but before that, they 
in the book and in the 81 version, they punch each other up, rip each other's clothes off, and proceed to, you know, become intimate with each other yeah, right I there and then in the open. Yeah. It's this very horrible kind of twisty, it's the most twisted sex scene you could possibly yeah. wish for. They've just murdered her husband, and the first thing they think the, of yeah. is, oh, yes, we need this now. Let's present ourselves to the public in the middle of the night. Yes, um, right next to this accident. Yeah. Right next to the accident. It, it's it's horrible. It does make you feel very sick inside, yeah. and it certainly had that effect on me reading it. And I, I enjoy that it was in the 1981 version, because it did feel very appropriate for those characters that I know. Yeah, and that's what it um, wants you to feel. So it's exactly um, what it wants you to feel. Yeah. But it's not in the 46 version, obviously, again. Um, so it's a little bit more of a, you know, I, I do wish the how does it look like? Surely Cora is heavily implicated in this because she just looks like she's not been remotely yes. injured and at and least they mention, Frank having accidentally fallen off the cliff is badly injured yes which plays into the the mistrust that happens between the two of them later on but they yeah, even this mention is the whole it. second half of the movie they yeah. don't yeah they don't remove that line of dialogue where they say you know we have to rough ourselves up and make it look like we're in this accident but no, then they but... don't do anything about it they just have a car come immediately and so then Cora runs up to the street so they don't even really do much more than just mention that they they both are aware that they don't look rough enough for it to have been to have been a part of the accident so they could have so I fully expected them to at least kind of like beat each other up a little bit um because of that line of dialogue but when nothing really came of it I was like okay well, what was the point of keeping that in then if they weren't really going to take that next step so even if we're not getting the gratuitous sex scene we're at least getting this brutality of them and how yeah. far they're willing to go to sell this. And they didn't even do that. So I will say that was kind of something that was a bit disappointing in the fact that they didn't even at least pay off them, you know, really attacking each other just to make this plan look completely legitimate. Yeah. But now as we move into the, the whole second half of the movie and you think this whole first half has been, pretty straightforward really i mean it's yeah. ultimately been two people falling in love and them being bad and not thinking about consequences plot to murder her husband and and it, yeah. and it works that's what they end up doing but you've still got half the movie left so what what on earth's going to happen now and it is venomous really yeah certainly for the next 20 minutes or so this is where Cora's spitefulness does come out. It's where she is at her absolute worst and also where she's at her best and most gripping and most watchable because mm -hmm. Lana Turner is just so... She, she's giving Anne Savage in Detour vibes of just, I know what I want and I'm going to get it because you are yeah. not getting away with this, Frank. Even though yes. everybody else thinks you should get away with it, you are not getting away with this. We're yes. Together. 
And the fact that she's so betrayed that she's willing to go down but take him with her. It's not about even her just like, like you know, taking blame off herself and putting it all on Frank. She is more than willing to have them go down together because just of as long as he's there. Yeah, yeah. But you know, the powers that be are trying to do certain other things, aren't they? You get a reasonably sleazy lawyer come in in the 1946 uh, version played by Hume Cronin yes. who we last saw as the detestable uh, prison warden in Brute Force which is yeah. a great movie prison movie, Burt Lancaster um, he he really does just he makes me want to throw up as well in this movie because he is just so pleased about he, he has no morals, this man. He yeah. is smarmy, he is sleazy himself, and he is so pleased about ultimately in a strange courtroom uh, lawyer sort of way, able to get them both off through making Cora give a confession to somebody she believes was from the DA's office, but was actually one of Hume Cronin's men. Yeah. It's the kind of great twisty courtroom drama that you tend to get used to in the odd noir movie every now yes. and again. And I like that we got some of that, which we didn't get any of that in 1981. We just get a ton of exposition. We get a big exposition dump about all of that that happened, which I think was kind of a bummer because this film is a little bit longer, you know, and for them to not take the time to show it um, and just kind of give us a bunch of information about all of that. Um, I, it was good to actually see it play out and also played into the emotional roller coaster aspect of, of this film because you think, okay, she is pissed that she's been betrayed and so she's going to get back at Frank and take them both down and now where is this going to go? So we see her give this full confession of everything that we've seen happen um, only to learn that it was all just Hume Cronin, uh, you know, showing what he can do and showing that he's in control of the situation and all of this and getting to the courtroom and seeing yeah Hume Cronin kind of have this surprise one up on the on the DA and winning the case and making the DA look dumb and getting them off and all of this is just playing into the ups and downs of the storytelling which I loved and 81 just brushed through all of that which was yeah kind of a bummer. it um it's where the the 46 one actually does feel grimier and seedier than the 81 yeah. one for, for one particular long sequence of the movie or you know a period of the movie an act of the movie um and i really do i really do like that change about it because it does feel it's a strange story really because it, it at times it feels like three stories in one um, and I know it's kind of three acts, but these, you know, everybody always talks about the three act story, but you couldn't get three more different feeling acts, ultimately, could you, in, in the story of the postman always rings twice, because all that first is building up to the murder of Nick, the second is the 
battle between the two of them and the hatred, the spite between the two of them in the courtroom. And then the third act is reconciliation, but fate not allowing them to have the ending they want. Yeah, um, I mean, in, now that they've put themselves in these positions to be really untrustworthy of each other, because how that begins is the lawyer kind of takes advantage of Frank when he's in the hospital after the car goes over and tells him that uh, Nick had this life insurance policy and making him think that Cora knew about it all the law all along. And that was her motivation for this. And she was going to have Frank go down while she just lives her life with this $10,000 insurance policy. So he plants that seed for Frank when he's kind of drugged up in the hospital and he ultimately signs a paper kind of implicating Cora and that but Cora had no idea about the life insurance and they were both tricked and that's kind of where you know and then Hume Cronin gets them both off but now they've they're sitting in this place of untrust of each other um yeah a Cora gets news so then they ultimately go back to the diner now that she does have the insurance money she does she follows through with her plans to build it out and set up a nice patio and had more people coming in and now she's kind of a celebrity because of this whole case that happened and people are coming there and business is great and frank ultimately still feels because i think like you said they really are trying to force this moral thing with this character that really isn't shouldn't be this strong point for this character but there's this genuine love for Cora this wanting to fix things with her so he does hang around and still work and he ends up becoming this employee for her and they don't really speak and they're not really romantic anymore and there's all these kind of hurt feelings between the two of them um so until suddenly they decide to get married well, yes, because now it, it it they're worried about all the talk that is coming out of them living together and the speculation of what happened and, you know, them being in cahoots in this whole plot and how it's going to look and also the DA still on their case. So to legitimize this relationship and not have the DA kind of sniffing around and not have people speculating, they ultimately do decide to just be married and make it official so that they're living under this roof together as a married couple officially. Cora gets news that her mother is sick, so she leaves to go see her mother. And two seconds into her being gone, now they're trying to play up this immoral kind of scoundrel version of Frank's character by having him immediately go and talk to talk to this woman so i mean even leading up to them getting married the mistrust is still there they're kind of on the outs with each other they're frustrated with each other so as soon as cora leaves frank he just starts you know he starts up this relationship with this woman it it, it is it's a it's a frustrating element of yeah. frank's character for me to be perfectly honest with you and it has been in, in in the book and in both movies it is just it's almost more understandable that i think that most understandable that jack nicholson does it and i think this just be my might be my preconceived attitude towards jack nicholson where i just think he, he does what he wants it's nick it's jack yes, nicholson of course, that... course he just wants to sleep around it doesn't matter to him it's jack nicholson but i shouldn't think like that um it's an element to the story that's just annoying to me because it feels like and you mention it yes the mistrust is still there but ultimately now they they have gotten married he does 
feel a certain sympathy for her when she gets this news of her mother's sickness and and soon to be death um you know he does feel or we at least understand that he feels a certain genuine sympathy for her and while you know they're not jumping on each other and and having it off on the table as they were months before there there's an amicability there to to live and work and help the business blossom and frank ultimately kind of seems like he's getting over his instinctive drifter nature of always yeah. needing to move to new places always you know getting uh, antsy feet and, and never being able to settle you get the sense that he's getting over that a little bit and this this might feel okay yet there's always that lurking at the back but it is the swiftness Janine, in which he trundles over in the 1946 one to, to Audrey Totter's car and in the 1981 one to Angelica, Angelica Houston, Houston, of all yeah. people. Well, I, I do believe they were maybe dating at the time. So, um... Again, I suppose out of context things, yeah. you, you, you realise, of course, Nicholson's gone for Angelica Houston. This is a famous uh, yeah. relationship that happened. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, in that 1946 one, I, I'm just there looking at John Garfield going, what are you doing? What, what, no, do not speak to Audrey Totter. She's perfectly happy on her. Do not go in and ruin her yeah. life as well. And lo and yeah. behold, what does he do? Yeah, he forms this little hookup with her. So then later when Cora comes back and he's seemingly all about some type of reconciliation with her, um... The, the, she does the woman comes to the door and you know then Cora has to come to him and be like well your friend just stopped by and she repeats all of the things that yeah. Frank had said to her about places he wanted to go he wanted to go to Mexico and all of these things and so now just kind of on the road of rehabilitating this relationship Frank has ruined it and they're back on this resentment path again <laughs> from what I can remember in the book um, they actually do go to Central America and have a bit of a road trip oh. around Central America, um, because she is a, a she's a, she likes big cats. Basically, she's a yes. lion tamer. Yes. Um, so, so they they do go on a genuine road trip while poor Cora's off. And this is where the sympathy for Cora comes in. The movie and the story constantly flirts your sympathy around yeah. between the two of them. Are you sympathetic towards Fran? Are you sympathetic towards Cora? You don't know where your head's at, Janine. It's not a straightforward story. Yeah. It's all over the place and wonderfully so. I wouldn't yeah. have it any other way. But it's just frustrating that yes. he immediately goes after somebody else. As soon else. as they get married, yes. And he could have done that it, the whole time before when they weren't right. really together. Yeah. It's it's just and, and then kind of ruins her and just causes this extra bit of resentment, as you've said, between 
him and Cora when Cora returns back. This is an interesting part about the 46 movie as well that I think is absolutely wonderful and so simple is for the vast, 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 vast majority of that movie, Lana Turner is wearing bright white costuming. Yes. Mm -hmm. as, it, as though to say, I'm a nice angelic figure. Yes, I've like never done anything wrong in my life. Yes, yes. And even Yet if in you've her heard most, the contrary, you you can't believe that. You know, you shouldn't no, believe it. You can't. It, it's it's wonderful, kind of just opposite costuming to her character. Yeah. Yet in her most sympathetic moment, when she comes back, her mother's died. She realizes Frank's been off with the lion tamer. Yeah, she's wearing black. She's wearing black in mourning, but it's the one time her costuming changes. And as we know, you know, black costumes mean vamp, mean villainous, mean devilish person. Yeah, what are you going to do in your sinister outfit? You know. Yeah, but that's her most sympathetic moment of the entire movie. And her costuming is changed to reflect the complete opposite. Yeah. I love the 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 opposite costuming in, in that 1946 movie. It's such a simple effect, but yeah. so such an effective effect. I really do. Yes, that. and and then we get to the point where Cora decides to leave. He catches her trying to call a car to come pick her up and take her away. He ultimately stops her. And then we get this really interesting uh, turn of events, which also takes me on this roller coaster. You know, she ultimately says, you know, we always found so much peace at the beach. Let's go back there. It's nighttime. And she's like, let's swim out as far as we can swim. So now immediately, because he's betrayed her, there's this all this buildup resentment between the two of them. She's trying to get him to swim out there as some type of, you know, noir plot now to turn the tables and kill him. They plotted together. He betrayed her. She feels scorned and hurt. He's slept with this other woman. So now it's time for her to get her ultimate you know, femme fatale revenge on him to have him swim out and like bang him over the head, leave him in the middle of the ocean, yep. something that is immediately what where my brain is going. Um, it's, so you're not, and you're not wrong to assume that that's <laughs> yes. what happened. So they swim out as far as they can go. And then she talks about how tired she is. I'm like, is she tricking him? Is she messing with him? But then she gives him kind of this choice. She's starting to feel all this guilt about how she's treated him, the plot, all of it. She just feels so much, so much pain and guilt and hurt over the breakdown of this relationship because for her, there was genuine love there. There was genuine planned future ideas for them. And because of how all that has, has fallen apart and the mistrust, she tells him he could just leave her out there. She's too tired to swim back and he can make the choice to go back if he wants to and just leave her there so then i'm like wait huh like what what is happening here so he ultimately chooses her he says no i'm not going to leave you out here they swim back together they get in the car i'm like wait so then they actually choose each other they choose love they reconcile everything's great and then my mind shifts to okay well this is interesting it feels why like is it a happy ending yes but but in that breath, like going to the ocean, this place that was was 
kind of a romantic loving thing for them and them getting into the water and swimming out and having this conversation and now we see them reconciled i see it as this really interesting kind of cleansing for them this cleansing for their relationship you know so i i ended up kind of seeing this metaphorical take on why she chose to do that you know it's like like a clean slate it's starting fresh um going to somewhere that is always special to them yes they get in the car they ultimately yes and they ultimately decide to to reconcile and then we get the car accident because they're snuggled up loving on each other he turns to kiss her looks away from the road crashes and just the perfect visual alliteration that happens of their first meeting the lipstick dropping and rolling towards him he gets out of the car we see just her arm flop over dead and the lipstick rolls out of her hand towards him and it's just so it's such a great visual it 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 really is and it's it's that callback visual and it's a similar Mm -hmm. thing that i was talking about with the costuming that just gives a bit of uh, extra flair to the way that 1946 movie is put together the way it's made the visual style of it and it being it being california noir we're not necessarily dealing with you know ridiculous lighting or heavy shadow or people in trench coats or anything like that it is far more about the person you know the personas of these people the the attitudes of these people but it is it is filmmaking like that that kind of gut punches you and really makes you take notice of certain lightness and darkness within that movie that make it so clearly noir that it obviously is but just give it something that isn't there in the 81 version um as 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 really good as the production design is in that 81 version to make it feel like you know late 20s early 30s east la you know that's just dusty and and dirty and you know full of just filth everywhere and, and nasty people there's not much flair to the actual movie making yeah and i just feel there is from from tay garnett the director in in that 1946 one and of course as we've spoke about that's where the 81 movie ends it ends with that car crash um of them ultimately reconciling but fate giving them one last punch as it should do that's the nature of this story that's what this story is telling you yeah is that you can't get away with all this bad you've you've committed horrendous crimes yeah you know karma comes back to to kick you and it does but obviously as we've also spoke spoken about i kind of prefer the obviously downbeat ending of that 81 version to the attempted we have to appease the code ending yeah of of the 46 one yes because there was elements to the 46 movie that I felt were pushing the code as far as it could go. 
I say there's there's enough booty shots of Lana Turner <laughs> in that movie to it's make me go, oh, yeah, that's, okay. quite, that's quite it's risky for 1946. Yeah, yeah. MGM in 1946, doing, you know, having shots like that, we re- where Lana Turner's wearing these really small hot pants almost. Yeah. You know, this is quite this is quite risky. I'm enjoying this. Yeah, yeah. But then it ends it ends in the whole um I understand the wrongs I have committed way. Yeah. Um, which is just so not what the remake does and not what the book does, because the book has him be sentenced for Cora's, you know, for, for responsibility for Cora's death as well. Mm-hmm. And it be explained to him, um, as it is in, in that 46 movie, that, you know, look, if you try and get off a cord, they're just going to have you on Nick's murder from months ago yeah. again. You know, you you knew you weren't supposed to lift a finger. Otherwise, this DA is going to be on you, on you like yeah. a fly, you know. Yeah. And lo, lo and behold, he now is. Um, But in that, He's almost in a depressive state in the book at that point. He's almost just like, I've, you know, whatever. I'm going to die. Okay. You know, I might, I, des- I, I might deserve to die. But it's, it's the level of, you almost get a swelling of music in the 46 one as well. Yeah. Of it being a little bit... And I think it's because there's a priest there as well that it just yes. makes it a little bit. Please, God, yes. forgive my soul. This prayer sting of strings and and it's yeah. <laughs> it's presented in with the same people in this telling him the same things in the book, but his attitude is just whatever, yeah. rather than please forgive me. Which I just think is is more. I just think he's better at depicting the kind of bad man he is. Yeah. <laughs> because I don't think he should be offered as much sympathy as the ending of that forty six movie gives him. Yeah. Agreed. It should end on the note that the eighty one movie ends of him being really upset at the concert about his own stupidity yeah leading him back to this path of you know you did enough bad that you you really thought you were gonna get a happy ending no way no way yeah that's what it needs to be yeah i just uh it's a strange one it's it's been a fun episode this yes yes it really has an unusual one for me to to have to kind of with that grasp. third with that third context coming in of yeah. the original source material yeah and and to try and you know to try and not allow it to overcome all my thoughts because look us being us and me being me did definitely prefer the 1946 version but i do think it's a more than worthwhile remake that 81 version that actually depicts frank himself as in a better is. way yeah because john garfield uh, john garfield's great don't get me wrong i really have enjoyed when john garfield has turned up on this show and i think he only has this year gentleman's agreement was the last one he showed up in and of course body and soul as well the boxing movie yeah but 
he is a, a more rough and tumble rebel kind of version of Frank, where he's yeah. he's wearing this kind of big baggy suit almost. <laughs> yeah. I've not seen he looks like Charlie Chaplin, but he does look like Charlie Chaplin. But he's got this baggy suit, and he just feels like he would roll around in the mud for a little bit. You know, he he almost maybe it's because he's also quite small. Yeah, that he he almost feels a little bit more, you know, childlike and kind of ah, I'm just gonna punch you up, which is why I think he was great in body and soul as, yes. as this kind of little fighty boxer you know <laughs> mm -hmm. nicholson just feels like the sleazy con artist that frank chambers from the book that is. you read yeah he does and he deserves but, but that's the difference i think nicholson's ending is what that version of frank deserved complete misery because he was definitely a nastier version and john garfield's perhaps understanding of his own issues maybe is was deserving of a bit of that redemption of yeah yeah fair, is fair perhaps right. what this version of frank uh, does deserve yeah both movies are great yeah i'd yeah. almost say remake it again remake it again using the best parts of both of these have it be nasty and graphic like the 81 yeah. But have it have a, a, a visual flair, have it be allowed to be very emotionally, you know, kind of theatrical at times. Yes, and have those ups and downs and you really questioning these characters and finding yourself really liking them maybe at moments or, or empathizing with them in moments, but then you know turning on them because of how deplorable they can be just a really good mix of of what the book really you're saying depicted them as but also bring some of that emotional uh you know pains that we got from from yeah. the 46 version do do a doctor sleep do a doctor sleep <laughs> do it okay yeah bring interesting king's book his i think four hour version of the movie and the shining together in a really interesting culmination that you know, yeah speaks to the best parts of both <laughs> yeah it's very interesting a great episode, great yeah, movies, great and a great, great story. <laughs> if you, if you are if you are wanting your California noir to be as nasty as possible, you might also have this go up against a Detour as a double feature. I'm talking about Postman and Double Indemnity as a double feature. For Double Indemnity, perhaps as a little bit classier of a California noir, as this is yeah. its dirty, grimy cousin. And uh, there's a little bit more maniacal intelligence going on in Double Indemnity, perhaps. Yeah. You know, these people are suited people, you know, insurance people. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and Phyllis Dietrichson being wealthy and well-to-do and everything's very nice. These are, you know, this this, this is the lower class version. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a really great, uh, really great duopoly almost, if that's the right word. But also, I'm not, I'm, I'm going to keep saying it, watch it with Detour, because yeah. there's a lot of Anne Savage's Vera, I think, in Lana Turner's Cora, when she gets particularly venomous. 
she just kind of turns like that. And it's the whole mentality of, I might be going down, but you're going down with me. Yes, you, I love that. You're in this energy. just as much yeah. as I am. Yes, I love and that energy for sure. Ultimately, your male protagonist being the one, or your female protagonist being the one to die at the hands of your male protagonist. Yeah. And your male protagonist to end the movie very miserable indeed. Yeah. It's very similar to Detour, another great California noir. That well, that yes. Is the postman always rings twice, Janine? Does your postman always ring twice? Does he even ring at all? He does do you not even ring. have a postman? I do have a postman, but I'm I live in a house where our mailbox is up the street, so I don't get a nice little thing at my door. Good. <laughs> you shouldn't want the postman to always no. ring twice, because then something akin to this movie may happen to you, and you don't want that. No, definitely don't want that. You don't, you don't want that. You want to be as far away as possible. Ah, we move in to the final episode, Janine, of Noir Vember next week. Mm. And this definitely is going to be an interesting discussion because we have another double feature. This was an extended deja vu today, yeah. really. We, we brought in the remake as constant comparison in today's episode but next week it is going to be a straight two movie double feature episode of fritz lang's the woman in the window from 1944 and scarlet street from 1945 both starring edward g robinson who is ah. gratefully back joan yeah. bennett and dan durier in two very similar stories or very similar character stories plot wise no but character wise yes so making for a good double feature a wonderful wonderful double feature um that i think you're definitely going to enjoy very much femme fatale noirs by the way joan bennett is wonderful in both of them and edward g robinson is so meek in both of them it is delightful to watch, especially coming off Key Largo, okay. where he is commanding so much respect and fright and terror. Um, ultimately okay being a little bit scared, you know, of, of the hurricane as he was yeah, last week. Yes. But being a powerful presence, he is just beaten down. In both Ooh, of these movies, okay. he's so I'm intrigued. He, he's so easily manipulated, and I think that I think the wonderful, wonderful movies. And this might actually be your first. Um, well, I don't know actually, depending on what you've watched before. If if this if next week will be your first uh, introduction to Dan Durier in movies, I, I yes, think you're going to like so. him. Okay. He is phenomenal as a ridiculously unlikable, arrogant boyfriend in both okay. of them. Okay. Okay. Um, who is kind of nasty. Give gives a little bit Lee Marvin in the Big Heat. Okay. You know, yeah. Not quite as violent to throw coffee but in similar, Gloria Graham's yeah, face. Yeah, but similar vibes but for sure. Okay. Similar. 
I'm totally. I'm an important yeah. person, and you know nobody's going to yeah. tell me what to do. Kind of attitude. Uh, attitude. Yeah. He's also got this very um, distinct voice, Dan Durier, as well. Um, he constantly is, is it in Scarlet Street that he constantly calls Joan Bennett lazy legs, and he just says it in this way that's so perfectly 40s noir yeah um he has a wonderful wonderfully distinct voice i've got i've uh, got a lot of fondness for dan durier as okay. a supporting actor i've got a lot of fondness for those two movies and i'm very excited to talk about them next Yay. week but this has been the postman always rings twice from 1946 with its 1981 remake janine unless you have anything else to say what else do we have going on well of course over on our other show morgan hasn't seen podcast every wednesday on the it's wonderful podcast feed it is 90s action november so i've been showing you some really great action films from the best decade of action films in my opinion that you've missed so we've been talking some fun stuff over there uh this week we talked about the fifth element so yes. that was definitely a fun sci-fi one which actually had a similar actor in that film and the <laughs> postman always rings twice uh remake uh so uh that was which is weird isn't it <laughs> yes because i was like that guy looks familiar oh my gosh he was that guy in that movie we just talked about so yes having a lot of fun over there on um morgan hasn't seen podcast for sure we certainly are. Let's also mention that Christopher Lloyd is at the very beginning yes! of the 1981. <laughs> Postman is. always rings twice and <laughs> never random. shows up again. No. It's it's very random. It's it's almost as though Nicholson's got his old buddy from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest involved. Yeah. Um, just say, come on, Chris, come let's say, hey. do this yeah. one scene right at the beginning very strange took me out of the movie right to start the movie because we're just like what what's christopher what, what? yeah is he gonna what, come back what's going yeah. on yeah. um unusual unusual but there we go yes it's a wonderful podcast ad morgan hasn't seen only it's a wonderful podcast feed on all major podcast platforms subscribe wherever you are listening answer the little questions we put on spotify if you're on over there leave all the uh the, the five star reviews and 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 all that add your comments all this good stuff also find the it's a wonderful podcast youtube channel subscribe ding your notification bell over there for all the fun stuff we do have over on the youtube channel and if you want to support us on patreon or donate in any way there are links in the description of this episode to go and do that we would be most grateful for your generous support you can also just find us on social media on Twitter at It's a Wonderful One. Find me on Twitter at the Purple Dot with a three instead of the E in there because Janine. Three is a magic number. On Instagram and TikTok at the Purple Dot. All your really, really horrible stuff is where. <laughs> Not horrible, I hope. Uh, you can find me at Janine Devine underscore on Twitter, Janine Devine on Instagram, TikTok, and Threads. If you want to get any merch for any of our shows, just check the description for the link or search It's Wonderful Podcast on teespring.com. And if you want to purchase any of my art in print form, you can find that at my big cartel shop, g9design.bigcartel.com. 
There we go. Janine, um, now, there may not be a great impression from a John Garfield, a Lana Turner, a Cecil Kellaway, or a Hume Cronin in, in <laughs> 1946, but perhaps a Jack Nicholson oh my might God. be I possible. Knew this was no, definitely not possible, but will be sadly and pathetically attempted. Three. <laughs> Two. <laughs> One. <laughs> I think you've got the smarm in the style. I don't mind that. Bye. 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 <laughs> it's a very different.